Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Inside the Times and the Sunday Times, and I'm your host, Sarah Baxter, Deputy Editor of the Sunday Times. Today we have with us Jonathan Calvert, editor of our Insight team. His investigation into the biggest football scandal of the century uncovered the massive secret payments that helped Qatar win the right to host the 2022 World Cup. It all began not as an investigation into Qatar, actually. It was an investigation into, generally, into corruption in the World Cup bidding process back in 2010. And we did what we did occasionally, which is um, we we went undercover. We we pretended to be lobbyists for for one of the bids who was bidding for it. And what we found was just kind of really, really eye-opening. It's quite astonishing. Everybody said that if you wanted a World Cup, you had to pay money to all the voters who were the senior FIFA members. And it was as a result of that, we did a very famous story, which was called World Cup Votes for Sale, which went around the world in October 2010. But as a result of that, one bid was the one that everyone was talking about, was the most unlikely one, the one that nobody thought was ever going to get the right to host the World Cup, and that was Qatar. Because this was going to be the World Cup in the desert. It was going to be the World Cup in incredible heat. And yet, the 24 FIFA voters, and they're, they're all men, had decided that this was the place that they wanted wanted the World Cup to go. And various people had told us various stories about Qatar. And, it, and we were, a few after, after we did our story, there was so many people were suspended. But Qatar, nonetheless, went on and won the right to host the 2022 World Cup. Did you have a sense that there was a even bigger story there to tell. In the opening months, we had a whistleblower who came to us who was actually working for the Qatar bid. And we also submitted alongside this whistleblower's testimony lots of people talking on our undercover tapes from our investigation to the House of Commons. And when the House of Commons published this information, it went around the world. It was kind of, it was a big scandal. A result of that, the, the FIFA files story. I was at home and I got this email from a contact who I knew quite well, who's, who said, I've got something interesting for you. And he'd given us some interesting documents about the Qatar bid beforehand. And so we, so we, so we were quite excited and, and we met him. And he introduced us to somebody else in a, in a hotel in London. And this person we met in the hotel in London had access to this enormous database. It was 20,000 gigabytes. And it concerned largely the activities of one man, a man called Mohammed bin Hammam, who was Qatar's top football official, and he was a top FIFA official at the same time. And he'd been instrumental in helping the Qataris get the 2022 World Cup. Let me take you back to when you received this document dump, because... This is a new age of investigative journalism, isn't it, where people can hand over massive files that are then quite an ordeal to sort of search through. 
but there's gold in there. It does feel like panning for gold. And so, I mean, because if you imagine, what we had was, was, was held on a server offshore, enormous amounts of information. In order to process it, what we had to do was uh, we, we got the special computer system called Intella, and that allowed you to, across a range of different things, because this database had everything. It had emails, it had texts, it had bank account details, it had flight details, it had travel details. It was just, it was just actually enormous quantities of information and so much of it irrelevant to what we were looking at. But we had to be able to kind of pinpoint the things we were interested in. So we were interested in FIFA and we were interested in corruption within FIFA and we were interested in Qatar's campaign for the 2022 World Cup. And so by using Intello, we, we could actually put in search terms and then it would throw up a list of documents. It was, it was nonetheless, even with that intelligent system, an enormous task. So at the time I was working with Heidi Blake and she was the other half of the Insight team. And the two of us, the two of us were after, after initially being told about the information, made a, an arrangement whereby we would have exclusive access to it. But as part of that deal, what we had to do is we had to go and review it in a place outside London. It was in the north it was a small kind of town even i didn't know where you were at the time you just vanished from the office no i mean in fact it's funny because because uh, we were away so long in the end we were away for three months in total but uh, i we would get we would get texts or, or emails from our colleagues saying where are you have you been sacked we, we haven't heard you not even our families knew entirely where we were and it was all because we had this arrangement with the source and the source was very keen that we should review the documents there in, in that particular room. And the room itself was, was on a high street. It uh, was above a boarded off shop, actually. And it was an attic room. And we, we called it the, the bunker because it, kind of, it was quite dark and, it, and, and, and quite kind of unfriendly and had a big computer server whirring in one corner. And it used to get very hot and we would be in there all the time. The room itself was quite small, but Heidi and I would have one computer each. And we had our backs to each other. And whenever, whenever we found anything interesting Interesting in the documents, we had we had kind of swivel chairs on wheels. We'd kind of pull our chairs over and, and wheel over to each other to tell each other if we found something interesting. Did you have these eureka moments? We, we did, yeah. And the kind of because because you know when we first started, we weren't sure that there was going to be anything kind of really amazing in there. A few of the documents had already leaked, and one of our competitors had, had done some, and so, which caused. Which we meant we didn't know two things. One, one is we, we weren't sure whether they had more of those documents. So you didn't know if you were in a race against time? No, we didn't know if we were in a race against time. And we just didn't know whether they just had the best of the documents and there aren't, weren't any others there. So we stayed in this hotel, but we were working there from, I don't know, sort of nine in the morning until especially towards the end, around about midnight. And we'd, you know, we'd eat there. The bins used to get terribly full of stuff and we'd have to keep cleaning it because the source was, was with us and he was kind of witnessing this kind of oddity of these two London journalists who come down and they were talking Fleet Street talk and, and they were very nice actually and very kind of accommodating of us but as we kind of you know we would occasionally we're kind of we argue occasionally we're kind of kind of frustrated because we couldn't find anything or whatever Have you ever and been tempted to make a film script of this? <laughs> Well, people have people have said this to us, and we we we, we um, both Heidi and I've always been of the, the opinion that the last thing we want to do is see ourselves on screen. So the the first Eureka moment was we we found a payment chip 
And basically, it was, it was like a, it's like a, uh, it's just a piece of paper saying this account from Mohammed bin Imam pays this football official. I think it was a hundred thousand pounds in this particular case. And once we'd found that, we realised that if you keyed in certain words from the payment chip, you could get lots and lots and lots more. And suddenly, we it kind of opened up the whole thing. And suddenly, there were a whole load of documents, all payments from Mohammed bin Imam to football officials. Yes, systematically he was going through them one by one, wasn't he? And places in the Caribbean had as big a vote as, say, Britain or France, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. So basically he was, he was spreading his wealth around, around the world. Lots to Africa and football officials in Africa. There was one key, particularly in the Caribbean, there was a key man called Jack Warner, who was a, who's now a kind of notorious FIFA football uh, official. And Ben man gave him, I think, a total of 1.6 million before and after, after the vote. And um, was it all under the guise that he that you know they were going to build football facilities in these places or some of it was dressed up but some of it really was just him paying them into the bank accounts with no strings attached whatsoever and then with certain people i mean he he paid one person reynald tamari who was going to vote for qatar's rivals america he paid him in effect not to vote and i think we counted up something like five million dollars of payments to various football officials. So w- what we were starting to see was both on a, on, on a low level, you'd have people like Ben Imam going around and buying support. And on, on the, the more kind of the bigger level, there would be big deals between the Qatar state and all the other states in order to curry favour with the voters in those states. And we were kind of left in no doubt that this was a, an extraordinary campaign to buy the World Cup. In the end, I can remember being at the Sunday Times on the day that we were bringing out this story and just sifting through all the information, making sure that the headlines conveyed it, that the detail was there to really back up all your claims was extraordinary. Yet when you think that you had sifted it down to just the sort of minimum (laughs) amount, a few headlines, basically. Extraordinary. But in the end, you had very compelling evidence. What was it like getting nearer and nearer to publication day? It, got, it was a bit like finals. At the beginning, we started. We would go home for weekends, say, for example, sometimes. Um, but we stopped doing that. And we were just there kind of seven days a week, working all the time on it. And we kind of would work until the early hours at that stage. And we were kind of getting, starting to get a bit paranoid, I seem to remember, because our source had heard that a private in- investigations agency had been hired to look into us. So the investigators were being investigated. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And we, we didn't know who, but we figured that we were dealing with some powerful people who had the way wherewithal to pay for private investigators and strangely when we were going through one of one of the files I came across a man who had actually been paid by Bin Hammam to investigate me. We'd known about the, the, the investigation into me several years ago related to the first FITA investigation. It was a very hapless investigation in which he, he went through my life and found a planning permission application I'd made and, and claimed that I'd done it in a false name because it was actually made in the name of my builder. It was just kind of nonsense. But what we didn't know until we were going through the documents was that Bin Hammam had paid for that investigation. And it was all part of an attempt to discredit the Sunday Times' initial investigation. But this kind of paranoia fed, and, and we got to a stage where we decided to black out the windows of our little bunker because we weren't sure if anyone was living, looking in. And we'd go out the back door rather than the front door, and we'd be very, we'd kind of, we'd leave the car in this kind of rather dodgy car park, and we were never sure who the people in there were. They were probably kind of drug dealers or whatever, but it was kind of, I remember us being getting quite paranoid. As the week 
we progressed. We, I think we started off saying that we would have, I don't know, four pages of Sunday Times, then it was going to be six pages, then I think it went up to nine. And finally, well, on the, on the Saturday, it was actually 11 pages of the Sunday Times, the first 11 pages. As, as our, our then managing editor, Charles Hymas, said, you only ever get this in times of war. I also remember on the day, everything was being legaled even to the last minute. Because if you're going after big guns, a very wealthy organisation, FIFA... And an entire country, Qatar, and extremely wealthy named individuals who you can have shown will stop at nothing. You had to really dot your I's and cross your T's, didn't you? You do, and, and that's that's what creates the stress, actually, because doing the sort of work we do on Insight, we're always dealing with allegations, we're always up against lawyers who will tell us who are threatening to sue us, etc. And so we're very, very, very kind of conscious of always trying to be 100% accurate, just as anyone would, but you know, we always know that we've got to be able to back it up and we can't get anything wrong. But when you're writing so much, the, you know, there you've, you've got to be on top of it all the time. And we did have a good team back in London, so we were still working from the north on, on the day of publication. Part of else, one of the processes you have to go through if you're going to be kind of happy that you've, you know, not left a stone unturned is you've got to get to everybody you're writing to and tell them, look, we're going to write this about you. What, what, what do you say? And, and of course, we went to the Qataris and of course, the Qataris did what they always do, which is they, they came back with lawyers and denied that Bin Amam had ever been kind of part of the bid or anything. But when you actually, when, when you actually do a story, you always kind of worry because, you know, you've done 11 pages, you're kind of on top of it. But there's always part of you that after afterwards you know goes goes home in the evening and says well, I hope we just didn't get anything wrong I remember that front page it said plot to buy the world cup <laughs> yeah it was bold wasn't it yeah. yes so that's your reputation on the line it right is, there yeah. yeah it is and you know you kind of this part of this part of you that kind of still is, is always just thinking yeah well we've got this and you read it through again and again and you, and you, and you can change for, for later editions so you keep reading it and you keep making sure that there's that there's nothing you've missed and touch wood to this day I don't think there was anything we, we never had a, one single complaint about that story no um, but the immediate reaction tell me about that what was the overnight reaction I mean it hit the world like a bomb didn't it it went all over the globe but what about the players implicated what did FIFA say you've said a bit about Qatar yeah well so so the immediate aftermath it was a Saturday and it was summer and we was it was a lovely summer summer evening but I can remember feeling a bit like the end of a marathon so exhausted after all this this work and then you kind of you you wait um, because we'd already talked to I think we'd talked to the BBC and told them this was coming to, um, to make them aware and then we talked one of their journalists through, I, through it I think and we were waiting to see if, it, if, if the television would pick it up very quickly or not and they did it was on the 10 o'clock news that night and then overnight the world just went mad we were getting emails texts telephone calls from all over not just the UK but media from all over the world FIFA tried to bluster their way out of it though didn't they? they initially they did the classic thing which for FIFA which is they just ignore it but then they kind of realised they can't quite ignore it. And it was it was just before the Brazilian World Cup. It was the week before. And, and the whole of the kind of FIFA hierarchy, including uh, Sepp Blatter, were meeting in Brazil in, uh, for, for their kind of pre-conference in, in Rio. And Sepp Blatter got up and, and dismissed our story by suggesting that we'd be motivated by racism and that somehow this was kind of a... It was just, you know, we were kind of didn't want a World Cup in, in, in Qatar. And some sour grapes that England hadn't got it. Yeah, which is part, actually why we'd got interested in the first place back in 2010 was the fact that England had been part of the bidding process but FIFA just kind of initially just 
watched Stone Walled and weren't really interested in engaging with us because it wasn't just the first week where we did the 11 pages. We then went on and did a second week of, I can't remember, I think it was another eight pages and then a third week of another kind of four pages, just allegation, allegation. And it got to the stage where the FIFA, FIFA press officer was just kind of sending us terse emails saying, we're not going to answer any of your questions. There was a kind of frustration because it kind of felt like we couldn't quite break them. Yeah, because they went into their bunker and even their own investigator, Michael Garcia, tried to ignore these allegations. Ironically, we started Michael Garcia's investigation into the, the World Cup bids 18 months earlier and he'd been going around with us another story we'd written about Qatar and he'd been going around the world investigating and so we thought when we presented him with this this evidence from our from our files, he'd be delighted. We couldn't get through to him. We ran he, rang his second in command up the following the day after the story it was a Monday morning and offered to send it to him. He said, oh, well, there's going to be an, an announcement by Mark, Michael Garcia this, this afternoon. So we just waited for the announcement, and we were astounded. And, uh, Garcia got up and said, I finished my investigation. I'm not taking any further evidence. I'm, I'm now going to write my report. And, and one thing I can say is that your, the investigation was so nailed down. You did have the bank accounts. You did have the evidence. You had the trail of money. You had it all banged to rights. And they still stonewalled for a while. Ultimately, the dam bust. And I, I think what, what happened was that investigation created an enormous pressure on FIFA. Suddenly, everybody was looking at FIFA. They felt themselves in the eye of the storm, particularly about this. And so when Garcia's report came out eventually, it was regarded as a whitewash. But even though it was regarded as a whitewash, Garcia claimed that FIFA had misrepresented his findings. He resigned, and suddenly the wheels were coming off FIFA. And it just took one more thing, which was the following year, and the the FBI had been looking at FIFA at the same time, partly because the Americans had lost to the Qataris too back in 2010, and they were kind of, they, they, they sensed there was something wrong about that particular awarding of the 2022 World Cup. It was just before Sepp Blatter was due to be elected president for, I think it was the sixth time. He saw it as a job for life. Yeah. Sepp had worked the system. Sepp, Sepp knew the system. Sepp knew that what you did was you kept all the kind of small nations happy by spreading out you know, bits of FIFA's money here or there and, and buy the vote around the world. It was possibly the most corrupt sporting committee you could ever imagine. Now you spent nearly 10 years on this story and the extraordinary thing is it's not even over yet. There will be more stories yet I'm sure. You haven't heard the last of it. Thank you Jonathan, that was fascinating. This has been produced by Alexis Sogel and Sam Joyner with additional research by James Stannard. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.